0: Hello, this is Gerald Eastwood, and welcome to this special episode on JFK, The Conspiracy Solved. My stepfather, John Stringer, took the JFK autopsy photos. I'm going to take you into never-heard-before information and reveal who was behind the assassination of JFK, how it was planned and executed, and most importantly, how it was covered up. Now declassified FBI documents show that George H.W. Bush was indeed affiliated with the CIA as early as 1963. He was in Dallas the day of the assassination. He put together such diverse anti-Cuban groups as ZR Rifle Group and Operation Mongoose. Kennedy knew the CIA was totally out of control, and of course, later the Bay of Pigs invasion completely failed. Frank Sturgis was part of the Bay of Pigs invasion. He was also part of numerous plots to kill Fidel Castro. Now, after Bay of Pigs, Kennedy fired Alan Dulles and two of his close associates, Richard Bissell and General Cabell. Kennedy vowed to smash the CIA into 1,000 pieces. Clint Murchison and Hunt, Texas billionaires, were concerned that Kennedy would destroy the depletion allowance on their oil income. Kennedy's enemy list was fast increasing. Frank Sturgis and his associates didn't appreciate the Kennedy administration's withdrawal of support for the Bay of Pigs invasion. All of this and more set the stage for the Kennedy assassination. The military-industrial complex needed the Vietnam War, and the CIA needed it also. Kennedy was not a part of the establishment, the Council on Foreign Relations. He was not a member of their secret societies, including the Freemasons. He wanted to establish peace. He was against American colonialism. He would not listen to the generals at the Pentagon. He had no friends in high places, only enemies by 1963. He was indeed a friend to the average American, but not to the elite who had somehow permitted him to become president. His adversaries needed a plan, and a cover-up of that plan to kill Kennedy. George de Monschritt was a petroleum geologist and professor who befriended Lee Harvey Oswald in the summer of '62. Oswald was to be the designated patsy in this plot. The bottom line was this with enough sniper teams, Kennedy's assassination was assured. The right riflemen were hired at a cost of $50,000 each. At least four teams were formed. Someone very wealthy put up the money. That leaves only a few possibilities. The plotters had to control the streets of Dallas. All military intelligence units had to be told to stand down. Multiple teams were necessary because a single sniper team had a very high chance of failure. Backups to the backups were needed. CIA agent E. Hard Hunt arrived in Dallas before the assassination and served as a paymaster. CIA pallets flew in various riflemen. Getaway pallets were in place. The night before the assassination, we are told by LBJ's mistress that a group of about 20 men met at an estate in Dallas. Investment bankers, politicians, wealthy businessmen, the dark side was definitely represented. When LBJ left that meeting, he told her, After tomorrow, those SOBs will never bother me again. That's not a threat, that's a promise. He was, of course, referring to JFK. LBJ was in charge of the cover-up as well. The so-called Warren Report was the cover-up. LBJ put Dulles, whom Kennedy had fired, on the commission to make sure it was a pure disinformation report. The next day, the Secret Service was told to stand down protection around Kennedy's car, leaving him open to a field of fire. The Secret Service was restricted to the car behind Kennedy. All military protection had been removed. The Dow Text building had sniper teams in place, so did the book depository. It had Cuban anti-Castro agents with rifles and radios ready. In front of the grassy knoll was a sewer drain with a rifleman with a fringe of a bullet who was the last resort. If the other snipers missed, he was to take out Kennedy. He did. He crawled out of the sewer drain 400 yards away to safety afterwards. At least four teams, two riflemen and one radio man per team, were in place. Military industrialists, CIA, black ops, and the other elements of the conspiracy had it arranged so that Kennedy could not escape. Professional killers were all in place. At the other end of the sixth floor, Arnold Rowland spotted one of the snipers. He thought he must have been Secret Service, but he was not. He saw a high-powered rifle in his hands a steel construction worker who testified at the trial of Clay Shaw observed a man wearing wire-framed glasses with earpieces and a rifle wearing a sports jacket at another location in the book depository. He said he was very heavyset. The CIA had hired all of these people. The CIA, supposed to be white hats, had hired the black hats. The firing began, and then shortly afterwards, the Secret Service agent in charge of Kennedy's car brought it to almost a complete stop. Then the fatal shot from the manhole, just 15 feet ahead of Kennedy's car at this point, was executed, and the crime was completed. Abraham Zapruder captured this shot on his amazing film. To produce the damage that occurred to Kennedy and Connolly required at least seven shots, and one shot missed completely, hitting the overpass, and a man named James Taig was hit by the resulting ricochet. The doctors at Parkland observed a throat wound, an entrance wound from the front, and also noted that another frontal wound had taken out his right forehead and occipital back part of his brain. My stepfather, John Stringer, who took the JFK autopsy photos at Bethesda Naval Hospital, gave the same description. At Parkland, there was noted a thorough and through bullet hole in the front part of the Kennedy limousine. Roy Kellerman of the Secret Service said there was a feeling like a jet sonic boom during the gunfire. This was because multiple riflemen from multiple locations were firing at the same time. Witnesses reported that the smell of gunpowder permeated the air in the motorcade. Governor Conley was hit by at least two separate bullets. One of the gunmen also hit Kennedy in the back. The fatal headshot knocked Kennedy backwards and to the left. It had to have come from in front of the limousine. The only sight that a bullet that produced this effect could have originated from was a manhole just 15 feet ahead of where the car stopped. It was open. It was uncovered. While the world looked at the grassy knoll, the final kill shot came from a storm drain. There was a shooter behind the grassy knoll, but his shot missed and hit the grass well beyond the limousine. Who was the shooter in the storm drain? We don't know for certain, but an interesting story was uncovered by Jim Mars. There was a man named Jack Lawrence who worked for the downtown Lincoln Mercury car dealership in Dallas. Lawrence claimed that Lee Harvey Oswald asked to test drive a car in early November. Afterwards, Lawrence reported the incident to the FBI. On 21st November 63, Lawrence barred one of the firm's cars. The following day, he failed to turn up for work. According to Jim Mars, Crossfire, quote, About 30 minutes after the assassination, he came hustling through the company's showroom, pale and sweating with mud on his clothes. He rushed into the men's room and threw up. He told co-workers he'd been ill that morning and he'd tried to drive the car back to the dealership but had to park it due to heavy traffic. Later, employees found the car parked behind the wooden picket fence on top of the grassy knoll overlooking Dealey Plaza. Lawrence's strange behavior was reported to the Dallas police. He was interviewed by officers investigating the assassination of JFK. They discovered that Lawrence was a marksman in the U.S. Air Force. According to Beverly Oliver, Lawrence was also a regular at the Carousel Club owned by Jack Ruby. Of the many theories as to how the killers managed to kill JFK that day, the one which best fits the evidence is put forth very eloquently by Francis Conley, in his film, JFK to 9-11, Everything is a Rich Man's Trick, Conley reveals at the R 55 minute 35 second mark how at least eight different groups of snipers who fired 16 shots in four separate stages were strategically placed around Dealey Plaza in the Dow Tex building, the Texas School Book Depository Building, on the grassy knoll and in the storm drain to ensure that many angles were covered and JFK could not escape. The next part of the conspiracy involved the body of JFK. Forensic control was needed over his autopsy and body. There is a link to The Men Who Killed Kennedy, Part 7, The Smoking Guns, in which a woman claims that her ex-husband, John Liggett, a professional mortician, took part in exactly such a body-swapping, body-alteration scheme. Her segment in that video begins at 2640. He is a highly skilled and bomber. He had a separate life. He didn't discuss it. Lois married him only three months before the assassination. The night of the assassination, he left his home. It didn't appear until the next day. His clothes were disarrayed and he hadn't slept. His wife said he was very agitated. He told her they were going out of town for a while until all of this blows over. Now, Robert Morningstar, a preeminent JFK researcher and personal friend, believes and initially proposed the theory that Tippett, the Dallas police officer, was murdered because the conspirators had decided they needed his exact corpse to do the body switch with JFK's body, and he looked so similar they thought they could do the switch without anyone noticing. He was called Jack at the Dallas police force because he had such a strong resemblance. If you follow this theory all the way through, it becomes factual since it's the only way to explain what happens next. The conspirators had arranged for Tippett to be killed with a bullet wound to the top right of his temple, just like JFK. Tibbetts' body was taken from the Methodist Hospital to Parkland and then surreptitiously loaded onto Air Force Two, where the most highly skilled doctor in reconstructive surgery and embalming, a mortician, John Liggett, was waiting to perform post-mortem surgery. As the coffin carrying JFK's cadaver was about to be loaded onto Air Force One, the people surrounding the dead president, including his wife Jackie Kennedy, were told to rush forward to be at the brief swearing in of former VP and now new president LBJ Lyndon Baines Johnson. This was a ruse to distract people so that JFK's body could be loaded onto Air Force Two alongside Tippett. Surgery was performed in the air on the way to Washington DC. The CIA is well known for using this technique of body doubles. This is when and how the switch occurred, but the conspirators made a mistake upon landing. Instead of putting Tibbetts' body in the same expensive ornate bronze coffin as JFK's, they put it in a plain gray metal coffin. This is what the corpsman at Bethesda reported being the type of coffin they discovered JFK's body in. Paul O'Connor at Bethesda confirmed this. FBI agents O'Neill and Siebert testified that, quote, the body seemed to have undergone surgery prior to autopsy, mainly in the head area. And Commander James Humes testified, quote, the moment he touched the head of JFK pieces of the skull fell down to the autopsy table. That would only have happened if surgery had been done before the autopsy. This was proof positive of the switch. And the only time would have been when Liggett was aboard Air Force Two for those few hours it took to transport the body from Dallas to Maryland, Washington, D.C. Later on, witnesses reported that when shown the body, Bobby Kennedy scoffed and said it doesn't look anything like him, while Jackie exclaimed, it isn't Jack. She said it looked like a wax replica, but it was not Jack. Charles Crenshaw was one of the doctors who treated the dying John Kennedy in the Parkland emergency room. Dr. Crenshaw said he reasoned that anyone who would go so far as to eliminate the president would surely not hesitate to kill a doctor, or would surely not hesitate to kill a photographer who had taken pictures of what the doctors had seen. There was in fact such a photographer documenting for history the wounds that the doctors saw and would eventually deny seeing. His name was John Stringer, he was my stepfather. John was the photographer who took the JFK autopsy photographs at Bethesda Naval Hospital and later testified before the House Select Committee. But here's part of the story that not many people know and really gives us amazing insight. At 4.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, on Friday, November 22, 1963, three hours after President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Lieutenant Commander William Bruce Pitzer, received a phone call at his home in Tacoma Park, Maryland. Lieutenant Pitzer worked with John and was the head of the audiovisual department of the Naval Medical School. He was called to the autopsy of the president. There he would partner with my stepfather, John Stringer. What happened early the following week is that a corpsman, Dennis David, stopped by Pitzer's office and found him editing film. As Pitzer hand-cranked a 16 millimeter black black-and-white film through the machine, David watched the short movie. He saw the body... Of Preston Kennedy, viewed from the waist up, he saw hands roll the body onto its side and back. Pitzer reached a conclusion. He said the shot that killed Kennedy had to have come from the front because there was a small entry wound and a large back exit wound. So Pitzer's evidence directly contradicts the Warren Report. The Warren Report was a classic disinformation document. That's why it is so important to study history so that you can understand what's happening now at the present. So what Pitzer had was prima facie evidence that a government cover-up existed and he could not be allowed to live. Bill Pitzer was shot to death on October 29, 1966. His body was discovered at 7.50 p.m. on the floor of the TV production studio of the National Naval Medical Center. The estimated time of his death was 4 p.m. The Navy ruled suicide, but Pitzer's friends and widow disagreed. Pitzer had a strong personality and wouldn't do that, they said. In fact, Bill Pitzer had been about to leave the military for a new career four days before he died. He told a colleague he was ready to submit his retirement letter to the Navy. He had confided in Dennis David that he had some very lucrative offers from a couple of the national networks to go to work for them. And Joyce, his widow, said that on the Saturday he was shot, Bill had gone to his office to write a speech. He was scheduled to deliver the next Wednesday at Montgomery Junior College, a nearby campus. He was enthusiastic about the future. He was not depressed. Strangely, Bill Pitzer's film of JFK's body has never been found to date. They found a pistol in his hand, but the wrong hand, and there was a ladder next to his desk which led up to the film where it was kept. It vanished. It was never seen again. The single most important piece of evidence of conspiracy was that trained U.S. Army intelligence units were told their assistance was not needed in Dallas during the JFK trip. William McKinney, a former member of the 112th Military Intelligence Group at 4th Army Headquarters, Fort Sam Houston, went public and stated that both Colonel Maximilian Reich and his deputy, Lieutenant Colonel Joel Cabaza, protested violently when they were told to stand down rather than report with their units for duty in support of the Secret Service in Dallas. All the Secret Service had to do was nod, and then these units, who had been trained at the Army's top intelligence training school at Camp Hollibird, Maryland, would have performed their normal function of protection for President Kennedy in Dallas. The motorcycle escort was reduced to only four men who were instructed to ride behind the rear wheels of the limousine. Two agents stayed with the plane. Open windows along the route remained open. Manhole covers were not welded shut. The crowd spilled over. Then the vehicles were in the wrong sequence. The Lincoln was first. It should have been in the middle. Any security expert would have detected this level of breach of protocol. The route was changed only days before the arrival and included a turn of more than 90 degrees, a violation of Secret Service protocol. After bullets were fired, the driver pulled the limo to the left and actually slowed down. At the hospital, a bucket of water and a sponge were used to wash and clean up the crime scene. The limousine was returned to Ford, and on November 25th, it was stripped of metal and rebuilt. The windshield had a through-and-through bullet hole in it, noted by officials at Parkland. It was simply replaced. David Mountuk, M.D. Ph.D., has proven JFK was hit at least four times in the throat from in front, in the back from behind, twice in the head from in front and behind. Conley was hit at least once from the side as he was turning to the left, and at least one shot had missed. That's six shots, not the official three. That proves conspiracy. The purpose of the disinformation operation and the death of JFK wasn't really to convince the public of the official account. It just created enough uncertainty to make nothing knowable. It was a hastily written, clumsy disinformation report called the Warren Report, and it superseded any real investigations. JFK, while in office, had transitioned from a traditional coal warrior into a statesman for peace, which threatened the status quo. He was about to take action on the oil depletion allowance, threatening major Texas oil interest. He had refused to invade Cuba, going against the advice of the Joint Chiefs. He was engaging a Vietnam withdrawal, which is a war many profiteers wanted. He also spoke against empowering Israel with nuclear capability. Kennedy was going to reform or abolish the Fed, and perhaps most important of all, he was going to shatter the CIA into a thousand pieces. This statement that he released may have been the fatal one. Finally, when New Orleans District Attorney Garrison tried Clay Shaw, the judge ruled out key evidence, which indeed did tie him to his true identity and to the crime. It was commonly known in New Orleans that Clay Shaw used the alias Clay Bertrand, A massive disinformation campaign was mounted by the Justice Department to quash Garrison and 17 witnesses mysteriously died before they could testify. Clay Shaw, under the name of Clay or Clem Bertrand, was overheard planning the assassination of Kennedy with David Ferry and Lee Harvey Oswald during the middle of September 63 in New Orleans. Garrison produced a witness who told a three-judge criminal district court panel on March 14, 67, that he heard Lee Harvey Oswald, Clay Shaw, and David Ferry plotting to assassinate JFK. Perry Jamin Russo, 25, an insurance salesman, and from Baton Rouge, testified he was in Ferry's apartment in New Orleans in September '63 and overheard a discussion of how to kill Kennedy and make a getaway. Russo said the plot involved triangulation of crossfire, diversionary shooting, and the sacrificing of one man as a patsy to allow the others to escape. Undoubtedly, they reported to higher authorities, but Shaw's involvement with the CIA speaks for itself. It was revealed years later that indeed he was a contract agent for the CIA. For the amazing details of how far down the rabbit hole this conspiracy went and who were the principles behind it, just read my book, Surviving the Deep State, under my pen name, Muir Taylor, on Amazon. It tells you everything, everything. Buy it today on Amazon, Surviving the Deep State by Muir Taylor. For now, I wish you a good evening and a safe week. Stay well and stay informed. Your life may depend on it.